This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out WatchCityResearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your host and book editor. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Amy Bucher, who will be talking about designing for behavior change. Welcome, Amy. Thanks, Dan. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for joining me. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am the author of a book called Engage Designing for Behavior Change, which came out a few years ago with Rosenfeld Media. So really intended for a UX professional audience who want to incorporate psychology, behavior science into their toolkit, whether they're researchers or, or you know, designers, whatever um, UX role they play. I'm currently the chief behavioral officer at Lirio, a company that uses artificial intelligence and behavioral science to get patients to take actions around their health. So for example, if someone's overdue for a cancer screening or a vaccination or hasn't seen their primary care provider in a number of years, we can really personalize messages that will speak to the reason why they're not taking action and drive them to, to get back into the, the medical office, get the care that will help them be healthier. Prior to that, you and I worked together at MadPow for a number of years, so I was able to really learn a ton in the consulting world, working with all different types of organizations to apply behavioral science to the work that they were doing. And I've also spent time at CVS, at Johnson & Johnson, worked for another startup earlier in my career, which is actually how I came in to be as part of Johnson & Johnson. So kind of worked all over the space, mostly in health, but really applying behavioral science to the design of interventions, products and services that are intended to change people's behavior. Mm-hmm. And to start things off, before we actually dig into the, the bulk of the content, can you define that for us at a high level, behavioral science and deciding for behavior change? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I have actually felt like my own definition of behavioral science has gotten a little slippery in the last few years. My degrees are in psychology, so you know, kind of a traditional academic training. Um, I really focused on social psychology as an undergrad, which is the focus of how systems, the environment, other people affect a person's behavior, perception, and experience. And then in grad school, I studied organizational psychology, which was really because the person I wanted to work with as an advisor was in that department. But it's, it's just the same kind of thing, only contextualized to a formal organization like a business or a school. As I've gone through my professional career, I mean, behavioral economics has been something that's on the rise for the last several decades. Um, The book Nudge that came out, I think, in 2010-ish really pushed behavioral economics to the fore. And so now I think behavioral science very much includes economists and particularly behavioral economists who are thinking about the ways that choice architecture affects people's behavior. And then I sometimes see the um, community including other social sciences as well. So sociologists, anthropologists, sometimes their perspectives are brought in. And I, I will say I've taken courses in both of those areas and found that their toolkits are very complementary and helpful. So particularly you think about something like ethnography And um, an anthropologist is very well trained to do that sort of research. So when I think of behavior science, I think of it as rooted in the social sciences, but you'll see a lot of variation in the particular strengths and focus any individual has. Yeah. And sounds very similar to UX in that way, rooted in the social sciences, but the the strengths will differ based on on the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us more about that. So for the UXers out there, how can we dig into that for designing for behavior change? When I wrote my book, I put a lot of thought into how to set this up because people had come up to me a lot, and especially after I got more involved, like in the UXPA Boston community and UXPA International, I think that was really where I started to realize that UXers were very interested in the skill set. And I had kind of accidentally crafted a career that had one foot in behavior science and one in design, but you know, a lot of people want to do it deliberately. 
And so I ended up focusing on two different frameworks in my book that I think um, lend themselves very nicely to design and are not overly complicated for people to understand and start to use. Although I, I do think at some point, most people will run into a place where they feel like they need expert help. One of them is the COMB framework, where it's an acronym. B stands for behavior and COM is capability, opportunity, motivation. It's a lens that we can use to understand why people may not be taking action. And then it includes linkages to research that says, if we can identify this set of problems, what is the right set of solutions to build into our design to help people overcome those barriers? And then the other is the self-determination theory of motivation, which is a really long name for something that is, is pretty straightforward. Most people know like the DC and Ryan extrinsic and intrinsic motivators. This is actually DC and Ryan's work, but a little more detail. There's kind of a range of motivators between extrinsic and intrinsic. And the idea is the more we can get people to do things for their own internally generated reasons, the more likely they'll stick with them, the more interested they'll be in the behaviors that you're asking them to do. And there's all kinds of ways that we can do that with design. So by supporting people's needs for making their own good choices, feeling like they're learning and growing through their experience and helping them feel like they really belong to something bigger than themselves. So I, I chose those two frameworks for my book because I use them a lot myself. But like I said, I also think they're very friendly to people who are trying to pick up new skills. There's, there's bits and pieces of wisdom that you can grab from them and kind of bring them in alongside the expertise that you've already developed as a UXer. Yeah. If I can make an assumption, it sounds like that would be initially incorporated in the, the research portion. When we're doing this research, we should be approaching in a certain way in order to uncover what these capabilities uh, and so forth are. How can we, how can we do that? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I think that all good behavioral design does begin with research and ideally at least some primary research. To use Combi as an example, I like to ask people to tell me stories about the behaviors that we're trying to affect. And I say stories because we're, we're natural born storytellers. That's how we're built. And so people usually have a, a reasonably easy time telling you a story about a time that they've done something if they've done it before. And then your role as a researcher is to be a really active listener and try to hear whether they're talking about these capability, opportunity, or motivational factors. And you can dig in more on any one of them. I actually have a spreadsheet that I keep of starter questions that allow you to dig in on those three areas. And of course, going in, you might have hypotheses about some of these being more of a factor than others. So you can prep your uh, moderator guide to be heavier in one area than another. The other thing that I've gotten great mileage out of from a research perspective, and there was a project that I did when I was at MadPow that was really instrumental around this, is combining the interview with observations. And especially if it's a behavior that has a lot of social desirability factors, people know that there's a right way to do things mm. and they don't want to admit to doing things the wrong way. So I worked on construction worker safety and why construction workers take risks. And they know they shouldn't. They're very well trained. They go through a lot yep. of training about all the rules and regulations. And one of the things that was so interesting is in the interviews, most of them wouldn't really talk about that. But walking around the job site, you could see that almost everybody was taking at least very minor risks. I saw a lot of people standing on the very top rung of the ladder, for example, yeah. which is obvious to me, a non-construction worker, that you shouldn't be doing that. And so, first of all, seeing the discrepancy between what people described and what they were doing was really helpful as a researcher. But secondly, it gave me some opportunities when I was doing the interviews. And what I found worked really well is actually to say, not you, but when I was walking around the construction site, I saw some people doing X, Y, Z. What do you think is going on there? Yeah. And I found that tended to be a really good way to start to get people to talk about the reasons why people do those things. And a lot of people, I think, without even realizing it, transitioned into talking about their own experiences. 
But again, that whole time I'm listening for what are the barrier types? You know, are they talking about, um, you know, not understanding or a big thing with construction workers was behavioral regulation. So lots of noises, lots of things happening at once. Not only do you have to remember your own complicated task, but you have to adjust it based on what people in your environment are doing. And so that that was an issue at times. Yeah. And that speaks to the importance of using mixed methods. Approaching a problem from different angles allows us to uncover something and then hopefully probe on something meaningful. Uh, I love what you said about doing the observations and then the interviews in order to probe on what you saw. Yeah, I also think it's just more interesting as a researcher. And I, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I got into psychology initially and then the line of work that I do, because people are interesting and I want to see mm-hmm. what they do. I want to hear their stories about why they've approached life the way that they have. And I think mixed methods, if you're a curious person and most UXers are, it's just going to give you that much wider of a lens into other people's worlds. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, and just getting back to the tactical in terms of accomplishing this, so you mentioned some starter questions in order to get at the capabilities and so forth. In the analysis, are you coding them by capabilities and opportunities and motivations? Yeah, we absolutely are. And I will say there's sometimes a little bit of debate because those three things, it's a taxonomy, but they are not um, discrete categories. They, they relate to each other. And so sometimes there, it won't be clear whether this is something that's, say, a social opportunity, which is about the social environment that the behavior is done in, or automatic motivation, which is about mental models. But those, of course, are very heavily shaped by the environment that you're in. So we're coding according to that. But what we're ultimately doing with that coding is we're trying to bridge into solutioning. And part of what is great about COMB is that when the researchers who initially built out this taxonomy did so, they also identified the types of solutions that are most effective for each of these types of barriers. And there's overlap in the solutions as well as in the barriers themselves. So when I'm confronted with a situation like I have this barrier and I'm not sure if it's social opportunity or automatic motivation, I'll make a note and I'll look at the solutions. And there's some solutions that overlap those two categories of barrier. And that tells me that when I get into the design phase, I need to highlight those shared solutions, if that makes sense. I'm sort of kicking the can down the road on the coding if my purpose is really designing something that works. Yep. I think that's fascinating that there is this directory of solutions available. Where is that coming from? What's that based on? So it's based on a massive literature review. The team that built this initially comes out of University College of London, and I think their earliest publications were based on something like 1,300 different research studies that they had reviewed and classified. Mm -hmm. And it's um, a really active research community, which is another, both of the theories that I mentioned, part of why I use them is they have very vibrant research communities around them. So the evidence tends to be fresh. There's people who are constantly probing on them and making sure that they fit the world that we live in. There's a tool online called the Theory and Techniques tool that actually um, somebody, some researchers took all of this evidence and put it into an interactive tool. So we use that a lot in our design, and we've actually created our own internal version that uses evidence from our programs, which has been very, very cool. But it, it just shows where there is a linkage in the research between certain types of solutions and, and, and problem sets. And so what we use it for, so first of all, if something already has a strong linkage, that tells us we want to use that in our design. But we also will deliberately sometimes pick areas where there is not a lot of evidence, but we have a strong hypothesis that that might work because we see that as an opportunity to generate new knowledge. It almost sounds like this is a huge support to what a lot of people are attempting in terms of building research repositories, 
building repositories of what they learn with their user inter interviews. But then often enough, the question comes up are, is, all right, what what then? What can we do with this? This sounds like a wonderful next step in order to actually take some next steps there. Yeah, I, I think it is. And it's it's relatively new too, I should say. I think the theory and techniques tool was developed four or five years ago. And it feels like the sort of thing that people are really just starting to pay attention to in the last year or two. But yeah, it's a great way to share this knowledge that we're generating as a field. I know the more advanced I get in my career, the harder time I have keeping up with new findings. Like I can't read papers the way I used to in grad school. Right. So to be able to go to this kind of consolidated uh, database, this aggregator, and be able to see where the evidence is strongest and where we could build upon it has been a real gift. Mm -hmm. What else were you hoping to convey here today? I love what I do. I really, I can't state enough how much I love what I do. And so I'm always hoping to convey excitement to others around using behavioral science, you know, tools, perspectives in their own work. I think that it really is important if you're building anything that you're hoping will change people's behavior in a sustained way. So, you know, there's certain types of products that people work on where it might not matter that much. Like maybe you want them to transact once. And as long as you make that an easy experience, that's enough. But for in healthcare, for example, where most of my career has been, we're really looking to engage people over the long term and in a series of behaviors that are oftentimes difficult or expensive or unpleasant. And I think it's really important that we try to understand what drives human behavior when we're designing these experiences for people. So if I can interest you in, you know, picking up a book about behavior science, it doesn't have to be my book by any means. There's lots of great stuff out there. But just thinking about different ways that you can understand why people might be behaving a certain way or not and building that into your approach, that would that would make me very excited. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully, it's a big goal of, of having you here on the podcast today. Uh, what other resources can people refer to? I actually have a website, which I'm very poor about maintaining, amybuecherphd.com. But I have a blog post on there that's maybe about two years old where I um, consolidated some books that I recommend to people that I think are good from a science perspective, but also approachable if you you know don't have your PhD and want to dig into the actual research. Yep. I also love the Habit Weekly community. So it's a newsletter. There's a free and a paid version. I do the paid version, but even the free version is a great resource. They have a Slack community that goes with it. And I find that to be a really diverse group of people in terms of their backgrounds and perspectives, but they just share this passion for applied behavior science. And so I often recommend people who are interested in dipping their toes in the water, look there, and you, you'll likely find something that bridges your field and ours. Yep. Great. Um, one of the questions that just came to mind is about privacy, because you mentioned working in healthcare, right? And mm -hmm. so how do we bridge that gap between ensuring people's privacy, but also giving them this personalized... I guess, nudges for lack of a better term for, for that change. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think consent and opt-in are really, really important to think about. And this, this actually comes naturally to me as someone with the advanced training in psychology, because anytime you do human subjects research, I mean, I, I go through annual recertification now to be able to do human subjects research. And a lot of what we learn is, you know, how, how to ensure that we have appropriate consent, that we're not coercing people, that people have the opportunity to withdraw from, and I'm saying research here, but I, I think of it the same way with the commercial work that I do that, you know, we make it easy for people to opt out of that experience. I can say that, you know, for us, we think about the permissions that our clients already have to communicate with people. And we'll often ask for an additional opt-in on top of that, depending on the topic that we're messaging and the type of channel. So text message, for example, is more sensitive than email. And so we will often ask for additional opt-in if we want to do a text messaging campaign. 
-hmm. But, you know, I, I think a lot of kind of typical UX things too about, you know, not, not doing the evil UX. We make it easy to opt out. We don't try to bury the unsubscribe link in a light gray font in the bottom of a huge footer, yeah. um, actually honoring those requests. And we, aud we do audit that to make sure that people are being successfully unsubscribed. So, and, you know, all, the, all that to say, I, I don't think that it's perfect by any means. I know that there are people who would probably be uncomfortable knowing that their data is used to drive some of the health experiences that they're offered. But I also believe that if we can be as transparent as possible about what's going on, make it possible for people to withdraw from that. And we're constantly operating with this idea of trying to be helpful to people, trying to help them advance their own goals, that we've got the right start at least. Yep. 100%. And just setting those right expectations, right? That's what UX is all about. We set the expectations and we meet those expectations. People are happy. I hope so. Yeah. Great. Well, my guest today has been Dr. Amy Bucher, uh, who has been chatting about designing for behavior change. Thanks for joining me today, Amy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.